When I was a boy, I felt totally secure. My father sold truck and car tires and he worked on cars. My parents barely came up with enough money to care for us. And even though I was aware of this, they made sure that I never doubted that my needs would be met. It allowed me to get up in the morning on Saturdays and on summer mornings, get on my bike and joyfully ride around town and through the neighboring berry and lettuce fields with my friends. On Sundays, we went to church in an old, a very old, incredibly beautiful church, and I loved being there. I went to Catholic school, and it was quite literally like a second home to me. My father worked hard six days a week, and he always came home smelling like tire dust and with grease on his hands. My mother taught me French, and although I have forgotten much of it now, it was our private way of communicating. There was one problem, though, one source of insecurity, something that my father, for the most part, compensated for. He did his best to protect me from this problem. My mother was an alcoholic. Every once in a while, she would fly into a rage and become violent, smashing dishes and screaming. Back then, I thought it happened when she drank more than usual. Now as a hospital chaplain, I realized that it happened when she went cold turkey. Only as a much older man did it strike me that I was witnessing my mother in the terrible throes of withdrawal. My mother was a good person and never bought anything for herself. She was dedicated to taking care of her children. She would drink in the evening, but in the morning she was up busily cooking breakfast and making lunches for us to take to school. One morning though, she didn't make it to bed and I found her passed out in the entrance to the kitchen. My older brother and sister were already out of the house. She had not made me a lunch she had not made me breakfast. I was very hungry, but the only way to get to the food was by stepping over her. I was too terrified to do this, and I'll get back to this. Let's look at a passage from Exodus chapter 16 concerning manna, the food that the Israelites ate in the desert and that they ate for 40 years. After escaping the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, and after the Red Sea had drowned the entire army of Egypt, they camp in an area called Sin. The word only coincidentally is spelled S-I-N. The people, as they often do, complain to Moses. Even after being miraculously saved at the Red Sea, they still do not fully trust God to keep his promise to care for them. Just as they did when they were at the Red Sea with the army of the Pharaoh bearing down on them, they began to wish they were back in Egypt as slaves. This time, their complaint is that they don't have food. As slaves in Egypt, they had all the food they wanted. Hungry slaves aren't able to do hard work. God tells Moses that he's going to rain food down for them. They're to collect exactly the amount they need each day and no more. The day before the Sabbath, 
there to collect two days worth exactly so that they don't have to work on the Sabbath. Indeed, in the morning, there's dew on the ground. When it dries, a flaky white substance is left behind. The people are puzzled and they ask each other, what is it? In Hebrew, this question is one word, manna. Literally, it translates to what it, and it means what is it. Some of the people disobey God by disobeying Moses and collect extra on the first day. But the next morning, it's rotten and full of maggots. The people are being taught to trust God. God will give them enough food each day, and they are to believe this by not trying to store any extra food. The people display their lack of faith by going out on the Sabbath and trying to collect food. But no manna appears on the Sabbath. We're told that the manna, the what is it food, quote, was like coriander seed and it tasted like honey wafers. This segment of the Exodus story ends with this passage. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Fill a two-quart container with manna to preserve it for your descendants. Then later generations will be able to see the food I gave you in the wilderness when I set you free from Egypt. Moses placed it in the Ark of the Covenant next to the stone tablets. This is a very important little piece of scripture. It tells us that symbolically, the promise of daily manna has been passed down to us. There have been a lot of attempts at figuring out just what manna was. Some academics have suggested that it could have been the excretion of an insect. That excretion solidifies as yellowish-white globules on the leaves of tamarisk trees. It can be baked into bread. One theory is that the story of Exodus is itself a myth. There's virtually no scientific evidence to back up the story of Exodus. If the people of God lived in the desert for 40 years, they left nothing behind, not so much as a single Twinkie wrapper. Neighboring peoples did not write about these nomads wandering in the desert, and since there had to be at least a million of them, this is very surprising. So perhaps Exodus is in truth a faith story, and perhaps the insect secretion on these weedy desert trees could have been the inspiration for the manna that appears in the Exodus story. But to me, the issue is not the historical accuracy of the Exodus story. To me, what strikes me is that over and over, God must put up with the lack of faith on the part of his people, and he must prove over and over that God does keep his promises. We can depend on God. The story of Exodus tells us about faith, about how difficult it is for us to keep God in our hearts and our minds and to develop that close relationship with God, the relationship that lets us live each day with joy and total security. 
we do not have to spend 40 years in the desert eating insect secretions, but we do have to live every day in doubt, not knowing what could happen next, not knowing what will happen to us or to our loved ones. Just as the chosen people had to trust God to leave manna for them in the morning, we must trust God to be present for us every day. Exodus is about trusting God to lead us through life, to guide us through our problems, and to never, never abandon us. At face value, Leviticus contains a seemingly irrelevant, massive collection of rules and rituals that the Israelites had to live by. This body of theological legislation, though, had a magnificent purpose. The lives of the Israelites were filled with constant reminders of God. They didn't come to church on Sunday mornings and then find themselves totally on their own the other six and a half days of the week. They wove God into their daily, weekly, and seasonal lives. They kept God in their minds and their hearts at all times. Only in this way can you ever get to a point where you fully trust God, where you develop a close relationship with the person in whose image we are made. I believe that the way to work God into our lives is through daily prayer and by reading the Bible. We need to find deliberate, conscious ways of putting God into our secular world. If you pause a few times a day, calm yourself down, and just project your thoughts toward God, that's prayer. You can lay out what worries you. You can express thankfulness for what you have. You can ask God to help you develop faith and trust in God. It's something you must do many times before it becomes a comfortable, warm habit. The Bible can be very intimidating. It's huge. Much of it, especially the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is filled with impenetrable history, with places and people and stories and geographic references that mean little to us today. That's why I spend so much time, when I deliver messages, going through the Bible and trying to explain its context and its meaning. I try to make it readable, digestible, meaningful, I suggest finding a book of the Bible that you feel somewhat comfortable with and read through it slowly, a little each day. By getting a simple commentary that covers that book, you can easily understand parts that initially seem foreign. There's good reason for the Bible to have the incredible depth and the weight that it has. This is how it is rich enough to feed us every day of our entire lives. There's always something new to find in it. Pausing for brief prayer a few times a day and reading the Bible for perhaps 15 minutes a day, that's all that's necessary to do what the Israelites did. That is the way to collect your manna every morning. And by making it a habit, you'll learn to trust that the what-is-it food will be there for you every single day. I'd like to get back to my mother. My first thought was to find my father. He normally would have already left the house, but I knew that he would never leave my mother laying there for me to discover 
when I got up, but he was gone. I concluded that he had left for work in such a hurry that he hadn't noticed that she had never gone to bed and he never went into the kitchen. Indeed, he often left for work through the back door directly into the garage. So I was alone. I simply got dressed, got on my bike and rode to school. It was early and I was very hungry. As I pedaled along, I worried about getting through the day with no food. But then when I got to school a good half hour earlier than normal, I discovered something. There were several kids already there, and in fact there were perhaps a dozen or more. They were standing around the back door of the convent, which was next door to the school. I went over there. It turned out that any kid who didn't have enough food at home could show up before school and get breakfast at the convent. One of the sisters was standing outside. She saw me and ushered me into their dining room. I sat at a huge oval table with a pile of other kids. It was the same table where the sisters ate and we had hot oatmeal with brown sugar, orange juice, milk, and a cinnamon roll. I stuffed myself. Then the sister who was ladling out the oatmeal wrote down our names. She reminded us that we could just go through the cafeteria line and the sister who was working the cash register would nod us through without having us pay. She added that we didn't need to be embarrassed. Other kids would just think that our parents had paid for our lunches monthly. You guessed it, I stuffed myself at lunch too. God will always give us our manna. It's okay if we must keep learning over and over that we can trust God. In truth, we're just learning incrementally through repetition, the way we normally learn. I encourage you to go out and collect your manna every day. God will make sure that there are countless insects secreting something gross all over the leaves of your tamarisk trees in your yard. It will always be there. You just need to go get it. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did, and now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then the people around Jesus replied with this, Give us that bread every day. And then Jesus answers, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So please, everyone, just remember that the bread of life is there every day in prayer and in scripture.